The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze with Grace Goller. Dealing with cancer is by no means easy to handle, but our program aims to make it easier through knowledge. Whether you've been recently diagnosed, are going through treatment right now, or are a survivor, our program will have points that you should hear. And by sharing our stories together, we'll make it truly a life-changing experience that you don't have to go through alone. Now, here is your host, Grace Goller. Hello and welcome again to Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm Grace Gawler, your host for the show. And the show is brought to you by the Grace Gawler Institute for Integrated Cancer Solutions. We're located on the Gold Coast in Australia, but we have an international outreach. Melanoma is often referred to as Australia's national cancer and approximately 1,500 Australians succumb to this cancer each year, while 12,000 are diagnosed with the disease annually. In the United States, the American Cancer Society estimates are rather alarming. About 76,000 new melanomas will be diagnosed in 2014. About 9,700 people are expected to succumb to their melanoma, The rates of melanoma in the USA are quite alarming and they've been arising for at least 30 years. Professor Brendan Coventry, as you'll hear shortly, has a special interest in two fields. He's an oncology surgeon with a PhD in immunology who has successfully synergised his trainings for the benefits of patients. And one of his specialities, which we'll be talking about today, is in the field of melanoma. Now, cancer immunology is is a pretty specialised and rare field that mostly lives in the world's research laboratories and really translates through to you, the patient. When most people think of oncology treatments, they immediately relate to chemotherapy, radiation treatments, and perhaps more recently, monoclonal antibodies. However, more recent innovative medical treatments, not alternatives, but innovative medical treatments and trials are more focused on the immune system than the cancer. But these as yet have not been established in the minds of cancer patient populations. There are options. Cancer immunotherapies and new approaches are needed. We desperately need a paradigm shift. It's an emerging field. And today we're going to discuss this area of medicine that's so crucial to the cancer patient. If you're a regular listener to the show, you may have recognised the name Professor Brendan Coventry because he's a research associate with Martin Ashdown, who featured on the show in November last year. In fact, November 7th, and the title for that interview can be found in the archives, and it was an answer to cancer, 
how your immune body clock can assist complete remission. If you look up the right-hand side of my Voice America Health and Wellness channel page on the website at Navigating the Cancer Mage, you will find all of the information in the archives. One of the many values of this show is that cancer patients around the world get access to cancer experts whom they may never otherwise meet or hear or read about. And that's a benefit to you because you, the patient, can then follow up potentially life-extending and life-saving treatments, which has already been evidenced by people who have contacted me as a result of the show. So remember to visit the website, gracegawlerinstitute.com, where you can contact me directly, or also, for any resources or references mentioned in the show, visit my blog, gracegawlermedia.com. Gawler, G-A-W-L-E-R, for first-time listeners, gracegawlermedia.com. Now, without further ado, we will welcome to the show our special guest for today, Professor Brendan Coventry. It's been really wonderful to um, read your papers, Brendan, and hear you speak. Can you tell us about your background, what inspired you into the field of oncology, and also what your qualifications and, uh, let's say, duties are? Right. Uh, well, well. <laughs> uh, this takes me back a few years. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I suppose, I suppose what's I, I was interested first in immunology, and what caught me was um, was a little science project that I did at school, looking at, at snails and injecting ink particles into snails. And part of that experiment, it was just a little a little uh, experiment in, in a biology book, and my biology teacher at the time, a uh, chap named Mr Coward, who uh, was uh, was quite a wonderful fellow, and he, um, he uh, told us to go and look at an experiment that caught our attention and, and, and then try to do it. And this was one. And so we injected ink particles into snails, and uh, then we had to... Uh, get the um, fluid out of the snail and then we had to look at it under the microscope and you could see the ink particles inside the macrophages which are primitive engulfing cells which we have in our bodies as, as mammals and they have in their bodies as, as snails. So these cells are immune system cells that have really transited right through evolution and uh, uh, and they do the same job in us. If we inject ink, if someone gets a tattoo, uh, the macrophages take up the ink, um, the carbon particles. So, you know, this was pretty interesting. And I thought, you know, isn't that fascinating that you can do this little procedure and you can get these cells to, to take up ink particles? And that captured my attention. So I thought, oh, I might do a bit of reading around immunology. And I came across an article written in Scientific American by McFarlane Burnett, uh, from Melbourne and uh, uh, later to become Sir McFarlane Burnett and, and also a Nobel laureate. And he was talking about a more complex part of the immune system uh, where um, transplant antigens could be recognised and that um, and, and he proposed that there was this thing called self and non-self so somehow or other the immune system had learnt how to tolerate normal cells and, and uh, not tolerate abnormal cells. And uh, part of that article went into cancer. And so it was very fascinating because somehow or other, cancer, which had arisen from normal cells, could be detected by the immune system and then removed. 
so uh, this this really captured my attention and I and it just got me thinking and I just kept thinking about it and I'm still thinking about it and <laughs> it, uh, uh, it, it's led us to, to ultimately think that McFarlane Burnett's theories are perhaps a little incorrect not wrong but just a little incorrect and we are gradually in 2015 starting to unlock some of how that might be correct and how might how it might be incorrect but um, We've learned a lot since McFarlane Burnett was around and, and wrote these articles, uh, but it's very fascinating, and his main interest was in viruses and so forth as well. So uh, so there just seemed to be a lot of crossover between infection and, and cancer and, and so on. And that, that stayed in my mind through medical school, and then when I came to do immunology, uh, it was just fascinating. I just got completely gripped with immunology. So you might ask, why didn't I become an immunologist? Well, yes, uh, <laughs> I was just thinking uh, that. I thought, well, you know, immunology seemed okay, but it seemed to be relating to a whole lot of diseases that weren't cancer, and so cancer seemed to capture my attention. It seemed to be an unsolved problem, and it seemed to be something that was enigmatic. It just, it just kept um, confusing and and uh, uh, and also eluding. Uh, much of the of the scientific world and the medical world and and cancer seemed to be uh, a big problem it, it was uh, taking away various relatives of mine and friends of our family and and so forth and and I thought well you know this this really does need to be solved it needs to be looked at and uh, so as I went through medical school I uh, um, I learnt things and and then eventually uh, in fourth year, I did a project in cardiology, um, looking at, at uh, a very innovative area uh, called electrophysiology. Which I did a summer vacation project for the National Heart Foundation of Australia, and, and uh, they generously awarded me uh, a grand sum of, of only a few hundred dollars, and uh, which was big as a medical student in those days. And and uh, and we we uh, were pacing people using pacing wires and so forth um, we uh, I did even a couple of these as a medical student something you, you would not be allowed to do these days because ethics committees would stop all these things but um, but they they trusted me uh, I watched quite a number and worked with them and assisted them and everything and they they said look you know this guy looks like he perhaps knows what he's doing um, he has worked diligently with us so we are going to um, we're going to let him put a wire in. So I put a wire in, and at the end of it, um, my mentor, who I was certain was going to be the guy I was going to study cardiology with, uh, said to me, I actually think you'd be a good surgeon. And I said, oh, really? Uh, I'd been dissecting things at school and, and we'd done all sorts of, of things. I prepared a few things for the lab, which I think are still in the lab at our school, um, uh, pickled and... Uh, uh, and so I was pretty interested in that, but uh, I had no idea I could probably do it. Uh, and and then I met uh, a really good surgeon who was uh, who was just impressive, and and he uh, he sort of inspired me um, and uh, pushed me on, and and I ended up uh, going off and and getting interested in surgery and doing surgery. One year into the surgery, I decided to stop and do a PhD, and I did it in. Uh, immunology, tumour immunology in fact, uh, in a department of immunology and pathology. 
And of course, all my surgical colleagues looked at me a bit uh, oddly and said, uh, "Look, uh, you know, why would you go off and do that?" And uh, they also said, "Well, um, particularly the medical colleagues said, you know, why on earth would a surgeon be interested in immunology?" And I said, "Well." Apart from surgical infection, wound healing, transplantation, cancer, and just about everything else uh, that a surgeon does, um, you know, where the immune system is important, probably not much. And uh, and so went off and, and studied tumour immunology, did the PhD and finished that. And I studied at the time tumour infiltrating lymphocytes, um, which are uh, white cells that, that infiltrate into the tumour. And, and were just beginning to be understood to be important. Most people at that time, apart from McFarlane Burnett and a few others, didn't think that, that the immune system was terribly important for cancer. But a chap called Steve Rosenberg, um, who's still working in the area at the National Cancer Institute in Washington uh, in the US, he, um, he's head of the surgery branch there, and, and he uh, was actively exploring tumour infiltrating lymphocytes, and still is. And his work um, inspired me, and we uh, uh, we did uh, quite a number of studies and found. I started looking at melanoma, breast cancer, and colon cancer. And uh, interestingly enough, the common ground between these three cancers, in terms of the the, the character of the tumour infiltrating lymphocyte populations uh, across a, a you know quite a considerable range of. of patients uh, that we examine their tumours uh, from um, uh, seem to be uh, very um, uh, there seem to be a lot of common ground so uh, it, it struck me that that these tumours seem to be quite widely typed, seem to be quite widely divergent mm-hmm. um, and I got more and more interested in breast cancer and melanoma uh, and uh, then went back into clinical life, finished off uh, my surgery uh, degree and, uh, uh, and then uh, went into general surgery. And from there into surgical oncology, which is cancer surgery, and, uh, and then uh, gravitated a bit further into, into melanoma surgery. But what I did notice, although we could treat a lot of patients with... Um, uh, with surgery quite effectively and, and long uh, cures effectively from their disease um, some of them did come back and when they came back it was sometimes difficult to deal with them surgically we could sometimes sometimes we could take out um, all of the, the tumour that had occurred other times we could only take out part of it because of its location and interestingly enough some of these didn't ever grow back so we knew that there was tumour there. The pathologist had said, look, uh, you know, your surgery is inadequate. You've not taken it all out. And, uh, and we were frustrated by this because we tried uh, desperately to do so and, and left some. But surgery uh, had not done that and tumour remained. And we were almost certain that this was going to occur. But it didn't in a percentage of cases. So mm-hmm. it was fascinating. Something was doing something to these tumours that was leading to a cure where a cure would perhaps not be expected. So you had the perfect marriage, really, there, of surgical oncology and immunology as your background. Uh, it was unpopular in those days, and, and in, it, it really didn't seem like a terribly 
perfect marriage except to anyone with a bit of a science mind. Um, before I got into medicine, I, I spent a, a few years doing science. And so um, we looked at biology of everything, mm-hmm. which I thought at the time was probably marking time because it was not human and it was not what I ultimately wanted to get to, obviously medicine. But um, it was instructive because it taught me that there was a lot more to what was going on in the human body that was common to what was happening in all forms of life, really. And that was pretty interesting. And I learned a bit of chemistry and mathematics, which, uh, uh, which again, has surprisingly been useful in all sorts of ways I would have never predicted. Uh, but this is the nature of education. You know, you, you pick up little bits everywhere and you never know when it's going to be important. And sometimes it becomes important at the most unexpected time. And, uh, and that's life. So... Yeah, you're obviously a very eclectic uh, person in your approach to your work. What posts do you actually um, hold? I know you're a professor. At, at, at this point, um, I'm Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Adelaide uh, and uh, a Senior Consultant Surgeon at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. I'm Research Director of the Australian Melanoma Research Foundation uh, and I'm, I'm past chair of the surgical oncology section of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. I'm a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine in London. And, uh, uh, and I'm uh, a National Institute of Health um, investigator. Um, I've done a number of studies with uh, the National Institute of Health, uh, collaborative studies uh, across the world, including Australian centres. And um, uh, and have learnt a lot about vaccines, and so my uh, one of my principal interests, apart from surgery, is is trying to look at ways that vaccines can be used to enhance uh, the immune responses against cancer. Mm, which is what I'm going to be asking you a lot more about during the rest of the show. So we're going to take a break now in Navigating the Cancer Maze and we'll be back very shortly with more about vaccines, the immune system, surgery, melanoma with Professor Brendan Coventry. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Gray Scholar Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years' experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Gray Scholar Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at grayscholar.com or visit their website at grayscholarinstitute.com. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Scholar, from the Grace Scholar Institute as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Gray Scholar Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.grayscholarinstitute.com. 
or email institute at gracegollard.com. You are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, here today with Professor Brendan Coventry. Um, Brendan, from your perspective, could I ask you to talk about the evolution and nature of cancer? A lot of people don't know what cancer is. Well, uh, cancer is, is a uh, um, form from a genetic uh, um, aberration that occurs that gives the cell um, the ability to divide and it divides um, not in a normal way I mean many normal cells can divide too so if if tissue gets lost from a particular area of the body um, then division occurs and normal cells replace those cells that are lost and the tissue gains its integrity again Um, so this is a normal process this process of division but in, in, in almost all tissues uh, even tissues we didn't think division could occur in, uh, in, in days gone past. But um, uh, cancer uh, is where the division becomes uh, uh, uncontrollable from the point of view that it replaces more than just the tissue and it replaces it with abnormal cells. Mm-hmm. But cancer means a lot of things and uh, there's some wonderful studies being done recently that have looked at the genetics of cancer um, across uh, the particular deposit of cancer in the single patient and uh, deposits that are metastatic that spread to other sites and uh, also deposits between cancer patients with the same general type of cancer. Mm -hmm. And the genetics show wide variation. Uh, This is is the real surprise. We thought the genetics would show... Uh, a lot of uniformity between cancer types and also within the particular patient. Um, so the genetics can, can vary a lot and uh, it really is uh, aberration and what happens too is that the mutations that occur to cause the cancer actually become uh, this mutation upon mutation so that bits of the cancer, parts of the cancer and also the cancer deposits itself develop all these strange mutations and uh, this is this is leaves us with the problem of, of cancer and the fact that it can grow and invade and uh, for a lot of cancers spread not all cancers do spread but but most of them do that cause the problems that we have and, and deaths of, of cancer patients um, uh, this is this is what's confronting us uh, clinically. Mm-hmm. So there are many opinions around at the moment on the influence of lifestyle, both in a cause of cancer, but also lifestyle changes being used as a treatment um, in the area of cancer medicine. 
Uh, could you comment on that, please? Well, um, we do know that, that uh, life is a risky business and so that you can increase your risk and you can decrease your risk. Um, uh, you know, uh, just as you uh, choose to cross the road, you can cross the road safely or you can cross the road uh, in a dangerous way. Uh, and similarly, um, uh, you can expose your skin to the sun in a safe way or a dangerous way so that you can increase your risk. Uh, there's no two ways about that. Um, by having excessive UV exposure, uh, smoking uh, tobacco um, excessively, uh, and uh, drinking alcohol excessively um, and uh, uh, being exposed to a range of environmental carcinogens like uh, uh, a range of oils and, and asbestos and, and um, uh, a number of other uh, carcinogens that are present in our environment, uh, some of which we we're only just finding out about. Uh, but so, so there are ways to increase risk and by increasing exposure to things that can cause genetic mutation, then you can increase the risk of, of cancer occurring. Mutation doesn't mean cancer, but mutation can lead to cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, mutation has to occur in the, in the uh, correct genes in order to produce cancers. So, uh, so some of these lifestyle factors um, are very important in increasing the risk. The interesting thing is, though, that not all smokers get lung cancer. Uh, not all people that get exposed to the sun get skin cancer. And so, quite clearly, uh, there are other factors at work here too. There are protective factors. Uh, cancer can run in families, for example. So certain uh, genetics are more predisposed. We know that people that get skin cancer, if their skin is fairer, then they're, um, they're more likely to get a skin cancer with excessive exposure of, of UV light. So, um, so this makes it rather complex, you know, what do we advise people to do and, and so on. Um, the main thing is probably to avoid uh, excessive exposure to all of these types of factors as, as far as possible and also to, um, uh, to um, have some sort of balance because you need UV light, for example, uh, affecting cholesterol in the skin to create vitamin D. So uh, all of these things are uh, really important and, and it's, it's very important to balance the risks as much as one can. Mm -hmm. The terms complementary medicine, alternative medicine, um, we were talking before the, uh, the show about innovative medicine and I noted on an ABC Australia interview that you uh, were invited to do yesterday that uh, the presenter automatically said that you were doing an alternative treatment for cancer. Um, this is a, a concept, I think, we need to really look at the, the changes in the naming of these particular modalities. Um, would you like to comment further on that? Yeah, yes, I agree. Uh, look, um, uh, uh, standard treatment is, of course, only standard as of today. Um, we are going to develop new treatments. Now, those new treatments have got to come from somewhere. So we've got to have some level of uh, research and innovation going on in order to uh, develop tomorrow's standard treatments. And so we start off uh, from somewhere. And so many of the treatments that we use today have come from nature. These were yesterday's 
um, grandma's treatments, yesterday's alternate treatments and complementary treatments and, and um, newly discovered uh, agents. And they, if they stand the rigours of scientific testing uh, and clinical testing, then they end up as today's or tomorrow's standard treatments. So um, we've got to be careful uh, what, we're, what we're looking at here. I mean, if we were to remove all investigation of any agent that was not currently used as standard, then we would stop innovation. be as simple as that. Mm. So um, uh, alternative treatments, uh, alternative therapies for cancer have, have gained a lot of bad press because, of course, some of them are dangerous, some of them... Uh, a lot of money is charged for them, so they're very expensive, um, uh, even to the point where people have had to sell their houses to, to fund it. Um, and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, these alternative treatments can interfere with standard treatments or uh, take people away from standard treatments. Uh, and, um, uh, and as I say, they can be dangerous. So they've gained a lot of bad press. Um, what, uh, what many... Uh, researchers are doing um, is trying to develop innovative treatments. They are alternative because they're certainly not what we're using today because we're trying to make today's treatments more effective. We're trying to improve them. Uh, So uh, it gets a bit mixed up. Um, Mostly alternative treatment is regarded as as some of these uh, unproven treatments that are are sold in opposition almost to standard treatment. Um, But uh, but, you know, out of those uh, can come some, some interesting, innovative treatments that will be used tomorrow, ultimately, and become accepted and standard. Uh, so uh, we've got to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater at the same time to protect people from being uh, unfairly taken advantage of in times where they're quite desperate. Um, complementary uh, medicine is a slightly different term in that it's thought to be complementary to standard treatments. Um, so that's been developed to sort of look at treatments that, uh, and try and describe treatments that are um, uh, helping standard treatment or might be ad- adjunctive to standard treatment. Um, you know, uh, uh, these, these things, these definitions get a bit muddy, but, but I prefer to look at things like, for example, what we're developing, um, vaccine treatments and, and looking at different ways to deliver those vaccine treatments. That would... Uh, I would suggest be described as innovative medicine uh, because we're trying to innovate. We're trying to create something that's new and different and better for tomorrow's patients. Mm, Which leads me into my next question. The nature of melanoma, uh, both as a primary and secondary tumour, and your background in this area. So can you describe to us more about melanoma? Well, melanoma is uh, one of the three main skin cancers that affects um, uh, Australians and and lots of other uh, Western populations in particular. Um, it um, there are uh, one in two Australians uh, get a skin cancer of some type. Uh, it's a very high rate. It's the highest in the world, in fact, and uh, shares that with uh, with the uh, top part of New Zealand. Uh, so. Uh, it's a it's a big problem in Australia. It costs us somewhere in the vicinity of about half a billion dollars uh, per annum uh, for our government and taxpayers. So it's pretty massive, and that's a very conservative estimate. So it's, it's undoubtedly a lot more than that. 
and uh, when we start to look at the, the new treatments for some of the uh, skin cancers, uh, in particular melanoma, then of course that uh, really starts uh, uh, climbing in terms of cost. Mm. But um, uh, So there's basal cell cancer, which is the most common, uh, uh, very unlikely to, to spread beyond the site that it's growing at. Um, there's squamous cell cancer, which is a little less common, uh, and that has a capacity to spread, but not a, not a great capacity to spread. Most of those can be just dealt with with local surgical excision, and then there's melanoma. Um, most of the melanomas that are that are diagnosed uh, are very thin and can be treated adequately with surgery uh, and don't recur. Uh, but melanoma does have the capacity to uh, spread, and if it spreads, then it causes. Uh, Problems uh, which uh, uh, which can be rather difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll come back and talk more about melanoma on navigating the cancer maze. We're going to take a break right now. Don't go away. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollerinstitute.com or email institute at gracegollar.com. Learn to navigate the cancer maze with trusted professionals in cancer health care. The Grace Goller Institute, a not-for-profit organization with an established track record, a global clientele, and expertise in local and international referrals. The Institute's founder has almost 40 years experience as a multidiscipline cancer strategist with a focus on finding options and implementing personalized care for cancer patients. The Grace Goller Institute can help you navigate the cancer maze. Why not email the Institute today at institute at gracegoller.com or visit their website at gracegollerinstitute.com. tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Back on Navigating the Cancer Maze, I'm Grace Gawley, your host, here today with Professor Brendan Coventry. And in this uh, session, we're going to talk about more on melanoma, and particularly vaccines. So can you tell us how you've been treating advanced melanoma, what results you've achieved, and what have you published on the subject? Well, uh, um, melanoma um, can be treated uh, by a number of means and and, uh, standard chemotherapy uh, has been the the mainstay and it's been the mainstay for for quite a number of decades 
really not changed and really not been very effective. So we've been searching around for treatments that uh, are more effective than, than chemotherapy. And one of these uh, was a vaccine that uh, we had used in a previous study across Australia um, where it was made out of um, a patient's melanoma cells that were grown in the laboratory and then, uh, and then split apart uh, so that there was uh, a, a mishmash of membranes from these cells. So the cells couldn't divide and couldn't cause trouble for any patient that we were to put them into, uh, but uh, they could induce an immune response in the patient uh, against their own melanoma. So these were patients that had melanoma uh, that had been removed surgically and then they were either not given the vaccine, which was one arm of the trial, or given the vaccine. And uh, the results after eight years of study were, (laughs) to be frank, um, rather disappointing for us all because it showed no real difference statistically between the... um, the group that was treated and the group that wasn't. But this was for melanoma that had been removed and mm-hmm. we were trying to stop it coming back. However, there was a slight difference in the curves in that the treated group was always just slightly above the survival of the non-treated group, but not statistically. So we're all a bit disappointed that this didn't show um, an, an, you know, an effect that was uh, um, statistically... Uh, robust and and also um, we were uh, disappointed that we didn't have a better treatment than than uh, to try and stop melanoma coming back uh, than just um, just what what we were doing currently, which was basically just the surgery and then waiting to see if it did come back. So uh, we were still left with a dilemma though with melanoma that had spread that couldn't be removed surgically, and in rather desperation with a number of patients coming through that didn't want chemotherapy or had failed chemotherapy um, we uh, tried this vaccine not really thinking that it would probably work uh, but um, uh, but uh, to our immense surprise it did and uh, in fact the first patient we treated had removal of all melanoma within three doses uh, and has remained disease-free for 14 years. Uh, he was so fit and well, he fought the bushfires on Air Peninsula in South Australia um, and, uh, and continues on uh, to, uh, to today um, without any melanoma detectable. And so we continued on. I mean, if we'd not had such a, a remarkable response first up, we probably would have got disappointed and, and may not have continued. But uh, we had... Um, uh, another 53 patients, so 54 in total, that were treated, and uh, uh, of those, uh, nearly 17% uh, developed these complete responses. Now, this was this was very unusual in a cancer that that previously was essentially a death sentence for patients, and and so to get such a high rate of complete response where all cancer disappears uh, really caught our attention. And we ended up publishing on this, and we published in 2010, and then again in April 2014. And uh, uh, and we looked at the five-year survivals, and that was published in the 2014 paper, and that showed a five-year survival of, of uh, uh, between 15 and 16 percent, 
which again was remarkable. You know, this was normally a death sentence, as I say, and only one percent or so of patients would be alive out to five years. Mm-hmm. So this was something like fifteen times the the results that had been obtained uh, thus far uh, by other treatments. So this really caught our attention, and, and we started looking at this further. And, and um, partway through that, um, uh, a, an article was published in, in one of the, the popular um, drug company-type journals. And uh, uh, I had a phone call from Martin Ashdown, who you've interviewed before on the program. And, and uh, Martin said, look, uh, you know, we've got some interesting work that we've been doing um, with... Um, with a mouse model and uh, and we've also just started looking at it in humans where the immune system seems to be turning on and off and uh, you might be interested in this and and so we uh, we spoke uh, for well over an hour on that phone call and and have continued speaking for well over an hour <laughs> on most occasions ever since and uh, and uh, it's been a marvelous collaboration and and uh, a great friendship and we've uh, we've managed to to try and unlock uh, much more than we thought we would unlock by uh, combining our resources and, and thoughts on the matter and have now published quite a number of papers together Mm-hmm. Could you uh, elaborate more on the measurement of the immune cycle and how that work has or may dovetail with your vaccine work um, currently and in the future? Well, what, what uh, continuously struck me uh, over the years with treating melanoma patients was, as I said before, not all of them recurred that we would predict because they had residual disease, that's disease that remained, we would have predicted it would have come back. So there was something going on and what we noticed treating patients with the vaccine was that some of the deposits would disappear and others would come up um, in the same patient. Hmm. Uh, some of them would disappear altogether uh, in completely in, in, uh, in the single patient and some of them would continue to grow no matter what we did. So it was, it was rather frustrating and, and trying to sort of unlock and unpiece all this and, and work out who was going to respond and who wouldn't, which remains a problem for, for essentially all treatments for cancer um, currently, um, it was, was a real issue. And, and so we, um, when, when I heard this notion, Martin heard this, uh, this dilemma that we were in where we couldn't work out... Uh, why some patients were responding and some weren't, and that there seemed to be some sort of oscillation going on in the cancer patient, in the size of their lesions, uh, we, uh, we really had some common ground. And, and so uh, when we started monitoring our patients, which Martin had suggested, then we uh, used a, a marker called CRP, C-reactive protein, that's produced by the liver, and it goes up with inflammation. Uh, any sort of inflammation. It's a very global, uh, uh, non-specific marker. But interestingly enough, in cancer patients, it, it, uh, if you take regular measurements, then it appears to go up and go down, and then it goes up again and goes down again, and it seems to just repetitively go through this oscillation or wave. This is remarkable. And we started looking at... We were vaccinating patients every two weeks, and... and we started looking at where the vaccinations fell with respect to 
this oscillation that was ongoing in each individual cancer patient. And when we looked backwards and had a look at where each oscillation, where each vaccination was given with respect to the particular oscillation that was going on at the time that it was given, then we started noticing that the patients that were responding had clustering around certain parts of the curve. So the vaccines that fell near the trough of the curve seemed to be associated with a better outcome in the patient. That really caught our attention. Mm. And it started to make us think about perhaps uh, trying to uh, look at this in a broader sense, get more information, and, and then start to look at it with different cancers and see if the same sort of patterns occurred with different cancers. And to date, uh, we've looked at a, at a range of, of some 15-odd cancer types, uh, many different cancer patients, and they seem to show this oscillation, this dynamic response that's going on in the cancer patient where the cancer can't be removed, but the immune system seems to be doing something to try and, try and rid itself of the cancer, reacting against it. And in a healthy person, you haven't been able to record an immune cycle, right? The immune cycle doesn't seem to be evident at all, no. Uh, and interestingly enough, in, in several patients that we've removed the tumour from, we can, the immune cycle seems to disappear. And if the tumour comes back, the immune cycle How oh, interesting. So we, when we looked at this, uh, and, we, and we're in, in a data-gathering phase at the moment, so we, we try to substantiate a lot of this, and, and most of it's sort of limited by funding and time and, and other constraints. But, um, but when we're looking at this, uh, you know, this has really caught our attention because it shows the immune response is not static. Now, that is, it's not just the same all the time. It seems to be oscillating. Now, this is very common with every biological system. So why we were so surprised and why everyone that's listened to our stories so surprised that the immune system's oscillating is actually beyond us uh, because we, we really shouldn't be surprised um, because, as I say, everything oscillates. Everything in biology um, usually is, is homeostatically regulated. That means it's, it's regulated to a particular set level and it goes a little bit over and a little bit under, a little bit like the speed control on your car. If you set it at, at say, 60 kilometres per hour, um, it uh, goes a little over and a little under to keep it at, at that level. Mm. So for those of you who are listening today who are interested in the immune cycle, we have a page on our website, the Grey Scholar Institute website, which is grayscholarinstitute.com. Um, have a look at that, and you can register to get information about how you might be able to encourage your oncologist or treating physician to look at your immune cycle. So don't go away. We'll be back shortly on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Listen each week to Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller, from the Grace Goller Institute, as she interviews cancer medicine experts, researchers, allied health professionals, patients, and caregivers. Navigating the Cancer Maze provides you with information, education, inspiration, and a toolkit that will equip you wherever you are and whoever you are to effectively navigate your way through the cancer maze. The Grace Goller Institute also provides ebook resources. Be inspired. Be empowered. Visit the Institute's website at www.gracegollarinstitute.com or email institute at gracegollar.com. 
are tuned into Navigating the Cancer Maze with your host, Grace Goller. We'd love to hear from you today on our program. Please call us toll-free from North America at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. International callers may dial in to 480-553-5759. You may also send an email to institute at gracegoller.com. Now, back to Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're back on Navigating the Cancer Maze. We're talking about the immune system today. And, of course, my special guest that you've been listening to is Professor Brendan Coventry. So we finished off the last session, uh, Brendan, talking about the oscillations of the immune cycle. Could you explain the peaks and the troughs of the oscillations of that cycle, what they actually mean, and how do you time treatments? If you could just give us an overview of that. Well, uh, look, some of this is in, in evolution. We're trying to understand this in, in greater depth. So what I'm about to say is our best explanation at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're trying, to, trying to sort of work on this further and, and unlock it further, and, and it will change a bit. But in essence, uh, when the, uh, the trough is the lowest point of, of the cycle, and so that's where it's, it's coming down, it's being turned off, and then it's about to be turned back on and the CRP levels are, are about to go up again. So this is based on, on C-reactive protein being taken, serial measurements each day uh, that, uh, at, the, at the, roughly the same time so that, that we can get points that can plot a curve. Mm-hmm. And that's reliant on enough points being present for the curve to actually show. Imagine if you had two points that were a month apart, you could basically just draw a straight line between them. But if you took them a week apart, then you could start to see some pattern emerging. If you took them uh, two days apart, you'd see a much better pattern. If you took them a day apart, um, so these are blood tests that a patient would get, and then you would get a particular level, and that could be plotted on on a graph. And that reveals a curve. And this curve is a waveform or an oscillation uh, which uh, goes up and goes down. And so uh, there is a, a trough where it's at its lowest point and there is a peak which is where it is highest point. And so it waxes and wanes. And what's driving that and what's actually making that go up and down, we're still trying to work out. But our, our best explanation at the moment is that there's two groups of cells, white cells, uh, called lymphocytes, that have the capacity to uh, activate and the other group has the capacity to suppress or inhibit. So what turns the immune cycle on appears to be the group of cells that are activating. So they're accelerating the immune response on. And they uh, start the acceleration, they start to divide very rapidly just before the curve is starting to go up. And then, about 48 hours later, and, and this has been worked out through multiple papers, this is not our work, this is other people's work as well, that um, about 48 hours after the activation phase, the immune system has a switch-off mechanism, a break phase, 
and another group of cells, the regulatory T cells, actually start to divide. And when they divide rapidly, then the immune system gets turned off. So there's this turn-off, turn-off mechanism, on, off, on, off, causing the wave. Mm-hmm. And then what we've deduced is that there are certain parts in the wave that seem to have an effect in turning the immune system on better and there are other parts that have effects in turning the immune system off better. So that the theory goes that if you target those particular points on the cycle, then you can actually turn the immune system on when you want to turn it on and you can turn it off when you want to turn it off. At the moment, because we're not taking this wave form into account, this immune cycle into account, then our treatments are falling wherever they fall when the patient walks into the oncology clinic. And that means that our treatments could be turning it on or turning it off or doing a combination of both. And we will never know unless we monitor the patient to be able to reveal this dynamic waveform that's going on underneath. And if we can then time instead of it being convenient just for the oncology clinic, but convenient for the particular patient at the particular time that they need to be treated, then we can actually turn the immune system selectively on or selectively off. And that opens a range of different treatment options for us to to use, probably using a whole lot of very cheap and inexpensive treatments that can manipulate the immune system on or off. We think this is occurring naturally. So people who have a remission just may, by luck, fall within the right time if they have a complete response to treatment because they've just fallen into the right time of the window of opportunity. Yes, and uh, um, Martin and I have have, have sat down and just looked at this further and, and we've now gone back and looked at at chemotherapy studies, um, many studies that have been done in in some 3,000 patients uh, and found that that the complete response rate across multiple different cancers and multiple different uh, cytotoxic cancer treatments sits around about uh, 7%, somewhere between 5 and 10%. Um, We've also looked at uh, a completely different agents that turn the immune system on selectively that are just given without any consideration of this cycle but they're just given to patients so they don't they don't kill any cancer cells directly and they don't uh, supply any any uh, antigen for vaccination or anything they they just simply turn the immune system on their rate sits around about seven percent five to ten percent range and we've looked at some of these newer agents that have been used for treatment of a range of, of cancers, in particular melanoma, and uh, some of the newer pathway blockers, uh, the so-called BRAF inhibitors, uh, and uh, for, for that group of patients that have the BRAF mutation, and also some of the checkpoint uh, inhibitors that, that can uh, take the break off the immune system and, and stop the lymphocytes dying close to the tumour. Uh, some of these newer agents are, are really quite exciting. But interestingly enough, their complete response rates sit around about 5 to 10% as well. So um, 
this this is quite remarkable. It's 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 mathematically very strange and biologically very odd that it should all sit in the five to ten percent range for causing complete responses. We should see a much broader range if if some sort of uh, mathematical restriction was not at work. So. Um, after lots of discussion and, and head scratching, uh, Martin and I have um, have come up with uh, the uh, the sort of inescapable thought that there must be some sort of window uh, where, uh, in this cycle, and this, each cycle is roughly seven days in length, there must be some sort of window uh, that the treatment, if it's given in that window, will become optimally effective for the patient and that this is the thing that's actually restricting it to this 5 to 10% bracket across every treatment that we seem to be looking at and we seem to know of and, and is reported in the literature. Wonderful. You've been very generous with your knowledge and time today. Uh, we're coming to an end now on navigating the cancer maze. I'd like to ask you back for another session at some point because I think there's so much more we could have talked about today and I'm sure we'll get very good listener response from today's show. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity too. Bye for now. I'm very grateful today for Professor Brendan Coventry who's taken the time to share his experience and knowledge and his research about cancer as well as his personal thoughts on cancer. He's recently been a guest here in Brisbane at a very special meeting called a meeting of minds where cancer vaccines immune cycle and innovative treatments were discussed. Please take a look at the website gracegawlerinstitute.com if you'd like to follow up further with this or especially related to the show my blog gracegawlermedia.com and remember for new listeners g-a-w-l-e-r gracegawlermedia.com and there you'll find a lot of resources and a direct reference to some of the research papers by link that Professor Coventry and Martin Ashdown have been involved with. It's been great having you listening to the show today. I'm always excited about innovative oncology. So join us again next week. And in the meantime, have a great weekend. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you again for listening to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Please join your host, Grace Goller, again next Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Remember, cancer is not something you have to face alone. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.